Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver, This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact, and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Past Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Past Gas. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. Past midnight in the backwoods of Georgia. A souped-up 1940 Ford Coupe swerves off the road onto a barely visible dirt trail. Crickets chirp in the dark. A little later, the car re-emerges. It's riding lower to the ground than before. The trunk has been loaded down with gallons of illegal moonshine whiskey. As the Ford rolls into town, a police cruiser slips behind in silent pursuit. Suddenly, a shotgun blast rings out, shattering the quiet night air. One of the Ford's tires has been blasted to pieces by a shot from the cop car. Red and blue lights strobe. A siren wails like an evil spirit. The Ford speeds off, but it's in rough shape. After a quick turn, the driver opens the hand throttle all the way and tumbles out of the accelerating car, watching as it speeds off and crashes a ways down the road. As the cops race to the wreck of the ghost-driven Ford, the driver enters the dense Georgia woods once more, this time on foot. He hides in some weeds, heart pounding. The man is black and the cops are white, a dangerous combination at any time in America, but especially in the Jim Crow South of the 1940s. 
The driver of the Ford is named Wendell Scott, and one day he'll be a barrier-breaking NASCAR legend. But for now, he's a scared 20-something bootlegger holding his breath as the patrol car's spotlight flashes overhead, hoping for luck to turn his way. This week on Pass Gas, it's the story of Wendell Scott. Hell yeah, that was so dude. cool. That gave me chills. I know, good, I already got a little yeah. like teary-eyed a bit, so that's, I think, a good sign for the episode, but a bad <laughs> sign for me. <laughs> Casey just ordered me a, a Whitney Houston shirt that says, so emotional. <laughs> <laughs> what a strange piece of musician uh, merch. Yeah. Uh, hey, do you want this shirt that says... You're kind of hard to handle. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a song or an album. I I admit I'm not well versed on Whitney Houston lyrics, but um, should that's be man. True. Yeah, one of the greats. Yeah. Uh, anyway, welcome back to Past Gas, everyone. This week, uh, I'm going to introduce my, myself and our, my co-hosts. I'm Nolan Sykes, <laughs> joined as always by my co-hosts, one James Pumphrey, uh, mower power, baby. <laughs> Lightning and, <laughs> and Joe Weber. Hey guys, I'm truly fired up to be here. I'm excited about this story, and I uh, I don't know what this voice is. <laughs> I want to get it out of the way. I mean, a lot of you guys are listening to this in your car, or but if you're watching the video, I just want everyone to know I'm fine. Since shaving my beard, uh, I've gotten a lot of DMs um, of people being like, "Hey, are you okay?" You look sad, and I'm not sad. I just don't have as much facial hair. Uh, but lesson learned. I'm gonna. I grow think we the should just back. let people know that D-list episode was filmed in the morning. It's got a little <laughs> bit of morning eye. It wasn't. It wasn't crying eyes. It was just a little bit of fogginess. Yeah, I, I thought the responses to to your shaved face, James, was I thought it was really funny because I watched the episode all the way through and was like, yeah, it was a good good episode. Mm-hmm. normal james nothing nothing to report and then i go into the comments and everyone's asking asking you to take some time off to recollect yourself and- <laughs> <laughs> yeah can't uh, we can't we got six shows to do yeah and i love how uh there were like there was a year period where it looked like my face was about to explode and you know <laughs> no one cul- said anything yeah yeah that culminated in a literal life threatening heart attack and nobody said <laughs> but as soon as i shaved my beard Everyone's all freaked out and concerned. I just, it, I think people have never seen your dimples before. So they're like, yeah, that's why I shaved because Casey didn't even know I had dimples. <laughs> yeah, I just the shaved dimples. my chest hair, uh, you know, because uh, <laughs> my girlfriend didn't even know I had nipples. Until I shaved, so <laughs> all that hamburger meat, get that out of the way. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Wendell Scott, uh, the first, um, one of the first. Black NASCAR drivers. Um, pretty insane story. I'm really glad we're telling the story this week because uh, it's really good. Um, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So are you guys ready to ready to go? Yes. Yes. All right. Okay. So we'll get back to Wendell Scott's bootlegging years in a little bit. But we first have to set the stage for a man that, frankly, more racing fans should be aware of. Uh, first of all, a big shout out to Brian Donovan, author of Hard Driving, the Wendell Scott story. Uh after you finish this podcast and you want to learn more about Wendell, uh, go check out this awesome book. So beyond records and trophies, although he earned those too, 
Wendell Scott overcame greater hardships to simply become a NASCAR driver than any competitor before or since. In fact, once you hear his story, you'll realize it's not even close. And to understand the significance of the barriers Wendell broke, we have to start at the very beginning of his story. Wendell Oliver Scott was born in Danville, Virginia on August 29, 1921. Even in birth, his circumstances were determined by race. Scott and his family were black. Danville's hospital was segregated. It would only deliver white babies. That meant Scott was born at home without any of the medical care a hospital could provide. Luckily, though, it was a successful birth, and luck would quickly become a theme in Wendell's life. He would need it in buckets to make his way in a Southern society that was defined by Jim Crow laws. If you're somehow not familiar, Jim Crow laws were a series of state laws that imposed racial segregation in the South. The laws came after a period known as Reconstruction, which saw former slaves prospering from emancipation at the end of the Civil War. These laws were famously upheld by the Supreme Court when the court laid out its, quote, separate but equal doctrine, which constitutionally authorized the segregation of white and black Americans, and subsequently, the treatment of African Americans as second-class citizens. White and black Southerners would attend separate schools, eat at separate restaurants, and drink from different water fountains. Jim Crow would also be the social justification for violence towards African Americans, nearly 4,000 of whom were lynched during this time. Damn. Yeah. Danville was a small mill town. Two crops, tobacco and cotton, were the economic engine behind everything. As a kid, Wendell's future prospects were picking cotton or tobacco in the blistering sun or working inside of a cigarette or clothing factory in often dangerous and unhealthy conditions. Growing up, one beacon of hope in Wendell's life was his dad, Will Scott, one of the few black men in town who had managed to avoid Danville's fields and factories. Instead, Will had found a job as a driver and mechanic for two rich white families who shared ownership of a prized possession that drew attention everywhere it went. One of Danville's first cars. Will allowed his son Wendell to help him work on the car. Instead of playing catch, the father and son bonded through Wendell passing Will tools as he worked on the car. Wendell was a quick learner and could soon guess what tool his dad would need next. Unfortunately, Will wasn't without his demons. As the Great Depression hit, the family moved around trying to find work, first to Pittsburgh, then to Louisville. Then to Louisville. These yeah, travels I was about allowed... to call you on that, dude. Yeah, man. Louisville. <laughs> Louisville. Uh, these travels allowed Wendell to get a taste of life in less segregated areas of the country, making him more comfortable around white people, a skill that would serve him well in the future. Unfortunately, his father was increasingly drawn to gambling, losing his earnings at dice and cards. Finally, Will and Wendell's mom, Martha, split up. At the age of seven, Wendell said goodbye to his dad as he moved back to Danville with his mom. In Danville, the family lived in a neighborhood called Crooktown, and it was where Wendell, a bit older now, became wise to the harsh realities of segregation. Although Crooktown was a neighborhood of both black and white families, Wendell's school and almost every public place were segregated. KKK held regular Klan rallies in town. Wendell was relatively light-skinned. His maternal grandfather had been a white man, and he could occasionally pass as white, but the so-called one-drop rule prevailed in the South at the time. Even one drop of so-called black blood meant you weren't granted the privileges of white citizens. When people found out Wendell was actually black, he was treated very differently. Now, just like when he used to help his dad fix cars, the joy in Wendell's life came from things on wheels, this time in the form of his bicycle. 
According to Wendell, he was the only black boy that had a bicycle in Crooktown. He rode with the white kids and quickly gained a reputation for speed and skill. Hell yeah. In high school, Wendell upgraded the bike to a car, specifically a rusted out Model T that he got for 15 bucks. <laughs> oh my God, that's cool. <laughs> it seems like a lot though for back then. How much is yeah. 15 bucks in 19... What year is this? Like the uh, 30... 36. 36, okay. Let's go to the old inflation calculator. So that's, a, so that's like 278 bucks. That's still cheap. That's still a cheap car. <laughs> well, I guess you get what you pay for. $275 car, $15 car back then. The Model T did not run at first, but uh, Wendell was a fast learner and soon got the car running. School was boring compared to the lure of his car in the outside world, and so he dropped out. Soon Wendell found a job that perfectly suited his interests, driving a cab for Danville Taxi Company. Just like on his bike, Wendell quickly earned a reputation for his cab driving. Everyone agreed Wendell was the fastest, and if you had to get somewhere quick, he was your man. The cab business was also where Wendell had his first brushes with the seedy underside of Danville. He learned where to take people when they wanted some moonshine or a backroom game of cards. It's like Crazy Taxi, the Wendell <laughs> or, Scott edition. Or the, the Simpsons game that was a total ripoff of Crazy Taxi. That was I kind of like that game though. It was pretty it fun. It was fun. Yeah, I forget what it's called. It's not Hit and Run. Hit and Run was the Simpsons ripoff of Grand Theft Auto, but there was a Crazy Taxi one as well, which I will not. Uh, maybe it was Simpson Taxi game. I don't know. <laughs> which it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because there is no taxi character in The Simpsons. Yeah, that's true. Never thought of it that way. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine living in a, a town so small that a taxi driver has like a reputation? You're like, yeah. oh, that, he's the fastest cab driver that we got. Like, can you imagine? Like, he'll take you to Crooktown in less than four minutes. <laughs> yeah, like calling an Uber, and it's like, hey, Wendell's gonna come pick you up. You're like, oh, good, this oh, guy's hell yeah. fast. Wendell. Yeah, yeah, good. I'm running late for the airport. If they send, uh, if they send Greg to you, don't even get in the car. Wait for Wendell to come by. He'll hook you up. <laughs> yeah. But Greg will recover. He's not. He's got thick skin. <laughs> yeah, he won't. He won't. He's he's got plenty of. of what do you call that? Johns? Um, Gee, yeah, he's got plenty of Johns. <laughs> Wait, he's, he's a prostitute? What you, <laughs> have you guys ever had uh, the same Uber driver more than once? No, never. No. Have you ever called a Lyft or um, an Uber and it was one of your friends? No, has that happened yes. to you? Yes. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I called a Lyft one time. And my roommate's boyfriend picked me up and he was like, cool, I'm on my way to your house anyway. I'm like, oh, that's cool. awesome. I'm like, cool, great. Uh, there's a lot of, <laughs> I mean, coming from the comedy scene, there's a lot of improvisers that do Lyft and Uber just to make ends meet. So mm -hmm. there's a higher probability of getting some rando improviser that you've done a show with mm -hmm. just taking you, to, taking you to a great penicillin at cvs or whatever <laughs> hey man want to hang out after this <laughs> <laughs> want to do some meisner stuff when you're done <laughs> uh, yeah improvisers are super into like classical acting methods <laughs> it was during this time that wendell had his first encounters with the law too he got 13 speeding tickets 11 from the same cop oh, my oh God. no john broomfield his life was going nowhere fast, but it turned out the cop was writing him a ticket to friendship. 
<laughs> this summer. <laughs> this summer's. I did have a cop that busted me probably three times in my hometown and, and arrested me a couple times. Oh, man. He just had a hard-on for you. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert. Uh, one day, Wendell's life would be turned into a Hollywood production. Ooh. So, uh, back in real life, Wendell just had to pay a small fortune in speeding fines. What's the most you guys have had to pay for a speeding ticket? Mm, like 300 bucks. 200, bucks, like high 200s. And then I also got four points on my license. Oh. Yeah. It was a bad year. I think I got arrested uh, three or four times that year. We would have done a background check. <laughs> I know we are having a criminal. Wendell had his share of good luck to go with the bad. His most fateful cab fare of the young man's life was when he picked up a 19-year-old girl named Mary Bell Coles. Like Wendell, Mary was trying to better herself. As a young African-American living in a white-ruled world, she was working as a maid for a wealthy family and going to beauty school on her days off. By this time, Wendell, who'd been shy and had a stutter as a boy, had developed some... <laughs> had developed something some would call swag. He had a car, a leather jacket, and the confidence to match. He was basically like... <laughs> uh, what's that guy's name? Hunky muscle car boyfriend. He was a hunky muscle car boyfriend. Uh, who's the guy in Drive? Ryan, uh, what's Ryan his face? Gosling. Little Goose. Ryan Gosling. He was a regular Ryan Gosling. Uh, I met he, Ryan Gosling. Did you, did you kiss him? Well, no, one of my ex-girlfriends used to make out with him. And then I saw him at Cafe 101 and like she was all like super like flirty with him. And then he was like, he was like, hey man, you like Panda Bear? And I was like, <laughs> that was a he, good Ryan Gosling. He, yeah. I was like, I guess. Yeah. He's like, yeah, Panda Bear is good. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good dude. I've seen more celebrities at Cafe 101 than any place else. Yeah. I saw Danny Masterson. Lori Beth Denberg. <laughs> <laughs> hey, kid, you want a toothpick? You want to go for a drive? <laughs> he sounds like, like almost has a lisp, almost has, like, needs to blow his nose. <laughs> anyway, uh, Wendell persuaded Mary to grab dinner with him, and from then on, they were a couple. Wendell oh. would give Mary a ride home from beauty school, and they'd daydream about their future together. That's so sweet. Wendell wanted to open a garage one day. The couple's romance was interrupted, though, by world events. Even rural Georgia couldn't avoid the historic events unfolding across the Atlantic. And in 1943, Wendell was drafted into World War II. Although in many ways, Scott's country didn't serve him, he was required to serve his country. But before he left for Europe, Wendell married Mary. That's nice. I like that. That'd be hard to get married right before you go to war. Yeah, right? Like, I don't yeah. know if I would. It makes sense nowadays because, like, your spouse gets all the benefits. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wendell sailed to Europe where he served as a mechanic in a segregated division of the army. He hated the strict hierarchy of the military. In many ways, it was no different than the mills or the cotton field he successfully avoided back in Danville. One bright side, though, was Europe's attitudes towards black people. Um, it was somewhat more enlightened than back home, as there was no Jim Crow law over there. When Wendell returned to Danville to marry 
and their newborn daughter, the town felt claustrophobic to him. Unable to return to the taxi business because of his speeding tickets, <laughs> damn you, Jim Br John Broomfield, uh, Wendell went into business with a friend and was finally able to open the garage he'd dreamed up before the war. But the reality of business was trickier than Wendell had imagined. He struggled with debts and his partner spent money recklessly. One day, a gasoline fire burned down half the garage. The repairs put Wendell further in the red. He needed a side hustle, and it wasn't going to be Postmates or Uber because this was back in the past, and those things <laughs> didn't exist yet. They weren't even cell phones. So he decided to become a moonshine runner. By the 1940s, Prohibition was over, but Georgia still had some of the strictest blue laws in the country, strictly regulating liquor sales and creating a thriving black market. Distillers brewed up the clear-colored moonshine whiskey and backcountry stills, and it was then transported to urban areas to be sold at speakeasies and backdoor establishments. Have you guys ever seen the like Moonshiners show on TLC or I History on, Channel? I was on... Um, this like discovery channel like clip show uh yeah. and one one of the episodes i was on was with one of the moonshiner guys oh cool yeah i think i remember that was it in a like a garage type setting or yeah kind of yeah we would just like watch clips and joke about them it's like ridiculousness but for uh, cars yeah with with duck dynasty guys yeah, I, yeah. I Jesse guarantee James you that was, was the, the other episode. That was the log line for that show was ridiculousness with cars and Duck Dynasty guys. Yeah, 100. Yeah. That's how they pitched it. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Getting the moonshine from the country to the town was where the moonshine runners came in. Usually operating at night, they played a cat and mouse game with cops and feds who were determined to shut them down. The race was on every night and the stakes for the bootleggers went beyond money. They were gambling freedom and even their lives. Ooh. As cops became more and more savvy, cars became increasingly important to the bootleggers. The most popular car of the time was a dark Ford Coupe. The suspension was upgraded to handle the heavy load of all that whiskey. A front plate was added to protect the radiator from dirt. Many drivers swapped in ambulance engines, hefty V8s designed for a much heavier vehicle. They would add additional carburetors and bore out the motors to increase displacement. Bootleggers wired in kill switches for their front 
and brake lights to make trailing them harder on the cops. That's so cool. Some even added a switch to flip their license plates over, James Bond style. A typical tactic was to keep the souped up cars up on blocks while they weren't being driven to make them look like they were broken down to avoid attention. That's smart. (laughs) Yeah, I think my dad's been doing that for years. Yeah, (laughs) guys, I think it's working. The feds are not on to him at all. (laughs) I think Zach Job might be a bootlegger. He's got a bunch of broken cars (laughs) in his front yard. I have like a vision for my Mustang that's kind of like not bootlegger, but like maybe cyberpunk bootlegger is a good description of it. Uh, Just like lots of little touches. I've never ran from the police. I, I. barely break traffic laws but the idea of having a car that's designed to like be off the grid and hidden on the road is like really cool like yesterday i was thinking like maybe i should like i should build like a little lead locker so i can put my phone in it and i can't be tracked when i'm driving around these are the kind of normal thoughts that i have when i'm alone (laughs) hey man if you need if you want to hang out sometime In a good week, Wendell could make twelve hundred bucks running whiskey. That's close to fifteen grand in today's money. Oh my god! All right, we got to run the wrong business. Uh, The typical going rate for liquor was double what you paid the distiller, meaning you could get a hundred percent profit off of every sale. The money wasn't the only appeal for Scott, however. The real draw was freedom: be your own boss and not answering to anybody. Ironically, in the criminal underworld. Race was much less of an issue than in everyday society. Nobody cared if Wendell was black. If he could consistently make the drop and avoid the cops, that's cool. (laughs) Now, while the moonshine business might seem glamorous, death was always around the corner, and luck was often the only thing separating the fortunate from the fallen. Remember the story in the intro about Scott rolling out of his car to hide in the weeds? The rest of that story shows how important luck could be. As Wendell lay hiding in the woods, a police bloodhound worked its way up on him, sniffing, and the cops were close behind. The dog stared at Wendell. If it barked or indicated in any way, it'd all be over. But for whatever reason, the dog moved on. From that point forward, Wendell would always keep dogs as pets. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That dog is not a narc. I'm going to get some dogs. (laughs) (laughs) That is good luck. It's strange reasoning to get a dog, but uh, definitely good luck. My dog is bad. Yeah, your dog barks at everything. (laughs) My dog barks Uh, at everything. Your dog's a huge narc. Yeah, my dog's a narc, and I caught her with a bottle of ketchup today. (laughs) 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 And she had chewed the top off. That's just like next level. Like, what are you how, even doing? That's not even. Where like, was the bottle of ketchup that she could easily get? She's a small dog. Like, how yeah. did, did she, she jump, jump on the table or yeah. what's going on? Yeah, she's on the kitchen table. That night wasn't Scott's only close call. Although many of his stories stayed secrets, his son recalled seeing the back of his dad's car riddled with mysterious bullet holes after a night of work. Oh my goodness! How did, and then you just you gotta go out and like find another trunk. And replace that. You know, you can't yeah. just can't keep driving that around. One memorable run occurred on a Christmas morning. Scott got an order for whiskey. Typically, he'd wait for dark, but he figured cops would be taking the day off. So, in broad daylight, he took his regular daily driver to make a run. 
On his way back into town, a cop pulled up behind him, then abruptly sped ahead and swerved in front of Scott's car, cutting him off. Wendell had no choice but to skid to a stop. Thinking quickly, he threw the car in reverse and sped backwards back up the street. The cops couldn't match him in reverse, and eventually, Scott found room to do a quick 180 and take off, like he's in the freaking Rockford Files. <laughs> then Wendell had an idea. He sped back to his garage and pulled the engine out of the car, then grabbed a different ride and left town to lay low. On Christmas. That's crazy. <laughs> I want to know what happened. Like, if he's doing that Rockford turn, all that whiskey in the back of his truck is probably just, like, smashing around and breaking. <laughs> the next day, the same cops predictably arrived at Scott's house and arrested him. But when the judge reviewed the case, Scott denied his guilt, obviously. He claimed it couldn't have been him. The car they claimed he'd been driving had been sitting in the shop broken down with its engine out for over a week. He was happy to prove it. Not knowing who to believe, the judge dismissed the case. Hell yeah. There you go. That's smart. In 1949, Scott's luck in the moonshine business would finally wane. Although Wendell didn't know it yet, a rival bootlegger named Claric Clarence Dixon wanted Scott out of the business and put a dastardly plan into motion to accomplish his goal. Dixon's buddy, Jack Anderson, called Scott and arranged a moonshine delivery to his house. Scott thought nothing of it, and drove his 46 Packard Super 8 to make the drop. Packard was more of a luxury car than a Sprinter. 208 inches from front to tail, with a plush tan interior. Hell yeah, this thing's sick. When, yeah, it's like your car. Yeah, it's pretty close. <laughs> That's why I like it. <laughs> yeah. When Scott arrived at Anderson's house, it was like a drug deal scene. It was like the drug deal scene in Boogie Nights. Something immediately felt off. Anderson told Wendell he didn't need the moonshine anymore. As Scott pulled away from Anderson's car, the bad vibes were confirmed. A cop car sirens whooped as it pulled up behind the Packard. Scott took off, but it was a hilly residential neighborhood, and the Packard wasn't built for sharp handling. It was a Saturday night and people were out partying, drunk off the same moonshine that had paid for Scott's car. Scott swerved to avoid the revelers, running off the street and crashing into the house where the party was being held. As everyone scrambled to avoid the cops, Scott was unable to escape. The police took out years of frustration on the elusive bootlegger, delivering a brutal beating before hauling Wendell to jail. The next day, the Danville newspaper ran the headline, it's bootlegged whiskey, police charge. <laughs> this is over a picture of Scott's Packard with its once beautiful grill smashed into a house. 22 jars of whiskey were found in the trunk. No tall tale would help Scott this time. But it was his first moonshine charge and he avoided prison with three years of probation. The confiscation of his precious Packard and thousands of dollars in legal fees and fines. Now, this is kind of dirty that they took his car. Yeah. Amazingly, that run didn't end Wendell's moonshine career. The money was just too good, and Scott now had kids and a mortgage to pay. It was a regular breaking bag, Heisenberg-type situation, minus the Pontiac gas tech. However, a new interest <laughs> had caught Scott's eye. Much of the local racing scene had sprung out of the moonshine business beginning in the 1930s. Drivers like Scott were proud of their souped-up cars, but making whiskey runs was a solitary activity as the drivers wanted to test their skills against one another. Weekend races had become increasingly popular. That's sick, dude. I love that Like NASCAR came out of just a bunch of dudes who made their cars faster to do illegal stuff. We're like, hey, 
I wonder if my car is faster than that other guy's car that souped it up to do illegal stuff. Dude, no way. I've been doing illegal stuff for so long. There's no way that your car that is also built to do illegal stuff is faster than my illegal stuff car. Well, let's put it, let's put it to, let's put your money where your mouth is. Let's drive around in this circle for a long time. (sighs) That sounds analogous to illegal stuff to me. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, guys, I am the witness. I will stamp my approval. <laughs> my name's Bill France. <laughs> Let's do this. Yo, they, they used to like race on sand, like over in yeah. Daytona Beach and stuff. Yeah, Daytona started like literally on the beach. It's so cool. I, I was looking at old pictures of Daytona Beach and like all those old 50s cars were just hanging out. Uh, and then someone linked like, there you can see a live feed of Daytona beach right now and people still drive on it. It's super weird. I think they should have like a vintage race or something oh, like once a year where all the NASCAR drivers driving like old cars on the sand. Yeah. It'd be cool. Yeah. Every once in a while, the, uh, the NASCAR truck series goes to not Daytona, but they go to Eldora, which is a dirt track and they That's race cool. the trucks on the dirt. And it's like freaking 30 to 40 of these big old trucks on this pretty Whoa. short course. It's insane. Um, <laughs> our buddy Bubba Wallace, uh, he won there one year. Oh, uh, nice. Which is pretty cool. Scott started to regularly attend these races held at the Danville Fairground, sitting in the small colored section at the track. But for Scott, watching wasn't enough. He wanted to race. For the millionth time in his life, Scott was in luck. The races at Danville were part of the so-called Dixie Circuit, an organization that held races in Virginia and North Carolina. Danville was struggling compared to tracks in bigger markets, so the local promoters came up with a unique way to attract a bigger crowd to the events. Much of the population of Danville was black, so to attract black fans, they would find an African-American driver and promote him as a novelty. The promoters asked the local police if they knew any fast drivers, and as we've established, Scott had earned his fair share of attention from the Blue Boys, and this time it paid off. Wendell Scott was the first name they thought of. It was, ironically, the cops who would kick off his racing career. That's cool. They're just like, get him out of our hair. Let him him get his energy out on the track. (laughs) For his first race, Scott brought one of his souped-up moonshine mobiles. He started off fast, but the car wasn't properly tuned for track racing, and when the transmission started to give out, he was forced to retire early. But still, he had competed. Nobody, including Wendell, really appreciated the moment, but it was a significant one. Wendell Scott had become the first black man to race a stock car in the American South. It was the first of many racial barriers that Wendell would drive a hole straight through. That's pretty cool. By 1952, NASCAR had existed for four years and was quickly becoming the dominant name in the emerging sport of stock car racing. If Wendell was going to race... He wanted to race NASCAR. The very next day after his first race in Danville, he towed his Ford to Winston-Salem, North Carolina to enter in a NASCAR lower division race. At first, the track officials saw Wendell's light skin and assumed he was white. They allowed him to enter in the race. But as they saw Wendell working alongside some black friends he'd brought along, they realized their so-called mistake and told Wendell that he couldn't compete. Whites only. On the long drive home, Wendell cried in anger and hurt. The tenacity that made Scott an amazing bootlegger also served him well in racing. Where so many would give up, Wendell would only keep going again and again. He started competing in events around the Dixie Circuit. 
He was often turned away because of his skin color, but the next race, he'd show up just the same. In Lynchburg, Virginia, he won his first race, a five-mile amateur heat. And because of Jim Crow, sometimes he couldn't find a motel or a gas station that would serve him. In response, he'd sleep on the ground and pack extra gallons of gas in the trunk. He was all in on racing. After a couple years, Wendell was a regular at the Dixie Circuit. His dual experience as both a mechanic and moonshine runner meant he was fast on the track and could also act as his own pit crew. Although many tolerated him, some of the other drivers and crew were actively hostile. They called Wendell the N-word, enraged that Scott would have the audacity to compete in what they saw as a whites-only arena. It probably didn't help that Scott was beating a lot of them. Yeah, they're just insecure. Mm-hmm. A lot of, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of racism stems from insecurity, you know? Announcers would sometimes introduce Scott on the loudspeakers as the world's only N-word race car driver. <sighs> but Scott kept his head down and slowly earned the respect from the other drivers, if not friendship. Of course, it wasn't his job to earn any racist respect, but that was the reality of Scott's world. Staying quiet was the only way to survive his environment. And when I say survival, I mean that literally. Drivers would run into Wendell's car, trying to knock him out of the race. If they succeeded in damaging his car, Wendell would simply pull over and fix it himself before re-entering. His persistence simply wore many of the racists down. It also helped that Scott would sneak moonshine into the track and sell it to the other drivers. Once <laughs> a bootlegger, awesome. always a bootlegger. Yeah, that's sweet. <laughs> Scott did well on the circuit. After winning a few races, he was ready to try again with NASCAR. At the time, NASCAR was controlled by the company's founder and president, William France. France still, is known... Still, it's still run by the uh, French family. The France family, that's right. Big Bill France. Uh, he was a confident and ruthless businessman. He ruled NASCAR with an iron fist, and you can reasonably assume that France was the only one with the power to racially integrate his all-white league. Instead of dealing with France, Wendell simply showed up one day at the Richmond Speedway and applied for a NASCAR license. The official in charge, Maurice Poston, warned Scott that NASCAR would be a hostile environment for an African-American driver. He had no idea that Scott's entire life had been built around confidently entering hostile racial environments and bending them to his will. Poston gave Scott the license. When word got oh. back to NASCAR headquarters in Daytona Beach, management was apparently furious. But when Jackie Robinson first integrated baseball years before, it had been a historic event. But Scott's achievement got no press. Stock, stock car racing was not part of the cultural mainstream yet, and NASCAR itself had no desire to promote the news. Shockingly, the exact date of Scott's first NASCAR race is lost to time. They say history is written by the victors, and Scott was only now even getting his chance to compete, much less win. We know now that Scott was a hero just for getting past NASCAR's gatekeepers, but he'd go on to do a lot more than that. In 1954, the first public records of Scott's races actually start turning up. He raced at Daytona Beach, which, was, which at the time was a massive 4.1-mile course. On one of the straightaways, drivers literally raced down the sands of the beach. The race featured 69 starters, nice, and Scott was recorded as having <laughs> finished 33rd, winning a measly 25 bucks. Scott suspected that he actually placed better than 33rd, and he angrily confronted the organizer after the race, to no avail. The organizer wouldn't even give him tow money to cover travel costs, which was, customary, which was a customary gesture for most drivers. 
The next day, Scott ran into Bill France himself and still angry, told him about the race in Florida. France's world was money. His response was to pull $30 out of his pocket and hand it to Scott. Scott remembers him saying, you're a NASCAR member. And as for now, you will always be treated as a NASCAR member. The gesture earned Scott's trust. And as he continued to struggle with racist promoters, he knew that France at least had his back. Scott was indeed a member of NASCAR, but that didn't mean that he was racing against the best of the best just yet. Just like today, NASCAR of the 50s was divided into tiers, with the top tier being the Grand National Division, now known as the NASCAR Cup Series. Scott would have to race well in the lower ranks of NASCAR in what was known as the Sportsman Class to break into the Grand National Division. The main difference of Sportsman Class was that you were required to race with a factory engine. Scott raced with Fords, which came shipped with a flathead V8. Grand National drivers, on the other hand, swap in fuel injected engines with overhead valve designs just like he'd done on the dixie circuit scott focused his energy on the track and let his car do the talking scott really started making his mark when he got the chance to race against high level drivers in mixed division races at the cockade city speedway i'm saying at cockade uh wendell managed to place second behind only ray hendrick despite competing with a stock engine against modified cars scott started to get positive press Instead of merely being a novelty for the color of his skin, he was building a name as one of the region's top racers. On the track, he still had to deal with drivers who would try to run him off the track, knowing that Scott couldn't retaliate in fear of being labeled the aggressor. Several times, Scott's car was flipped over and wrecked in these suspicious incidents. But Scott was gaining confidence, and now that he'd raced against the best, he saw that he belonged. Maybe this is a bad analogy, but I feel like when... LeBron James plays basketball. He's so huge and so dominant that normal fouls don't even look like fouls. So he has to like play them up, you know? Hmm. Is this a bad analogy? <laughs> no, I, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. It's like a reverse analogy of what you're saying of what, of what's going on. Yeah. Sort of. It's, it's, I mean, it just demonstrates what, what, what Wendell has to go through. Like, you know, he's, He's black in a white man's sport, so he has to do, he has to conduct himself and compete so much better to get even the same amount of recognition as like average dudes, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's way, way better. Well said. <laughs> I'm feeling like Garfield right now. A little bit like Garfield. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I got some Garfield vibes. I want some lasagna. <laughs> oh, you're just hungry. <laughs> yeah, I want lasagna. <laughs> I want some lasagna. Do you remember when when Wheezy was like real G's move in silence like lasagna? I was oh, just yeah. thinking and then, of that. And then everyone was like, "Well, well, actually, the G actually kind of makes a sound in lasagna, so you're wrong." And everyone's like, "Shut up!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. You're no fun, you dork. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in addition to racing, Scott was still working as a mechanic and still running moonshine. The family would even sell moonshine by the glass out of their house, <laughs> hiding jugs in the chimney using a pulley system. Oh, just... man. <laughs> oh, man. In the chimney with a pulley system, you say? Oh, man. Hey, you want a glass of whiskey? Go wait outside by the chimney. If we ever make a trip, 
If we ever make a trip to the south, I would actually very much like to try some authentic moonshine whiskey. Not this. No, you don't. Yes, I do. It's gross. It's gross. I don't care. I don't care. I want to try it. If there's any liquor I want, it's the stuff that's made in a still out in the middle of the holler, preferably next to a, a, a creek. Well, let me know if you need like a seen eye dog when you go blind. Yeah, can I borrow one of your dogs? Yeah, they're going to just take you to our pantry to get <laughs> food, though. That's the only place they go. We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. In spite of all his uh, side jobs, including the mechanic and the, and the moonshine, NASCAR was quickly becoming Wendell's top priority. Wendell was soon racing six days a week with Mondays <laughs> off to work on his cars. How the hell do you do that? I don't even drive six days a week. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even shower six days a week. No, I, do. I realized I hadn't driven my like daily in like three months. <laughs> Not really daily. It's more like a monthly, I'm... am I right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk to my mm. wife. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I like don't like we're not going to the office right now, so I like work from home, and then like all errands are like short enough, and like I live around some twisty roads, so I just take like I had the BMW for a while, and now I have the Corolla, so I just drive the fun car. Yeah, that's a little background <laughs> into the James Pumphrey life. What's going on? I just on want there? everyone to know I'm fine. I feel good. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm down to two hundred and six point eight pounds. Wow! I've lost fifty pounds. I'm very happy. My relationship's going well. Very happy with how Donut is going. We're all firing on four cylinders. Joe just got a promotion. Took a lot off my plate. Very happy about that. We got a bunch of hit shows. I, I host three. But just, you know what, guys? I shaved my beard, and I look a little different. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked, too. Every time I open up a video call or walk into the bathroom, I'm like, who's that guy with no lips? <laughs> I didn't. I forgot that I don't have lips. <laughs> and or a chin. I realize I remembered why I grew the beard in the first place to mimic a jawline because I don't have one. Remember when you had that like pharaoh beard that was very like shaped? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man, there's some. I, you know, I I let the the YouTube autoplay sometimes, and I get some old episodes of up to speed, and there were some pretty uh, interesting facial hair choices. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Back in the day. <laughs> There's a couple, you can't even see my eyes because my face is just swollen shut from, because all I used to do is drink whiskey and eat pickles. That's true. And that's how Donut used to run back in the day. Not anymore. We're out here making, <laughs> we're out here cooking vegetarian meals and drinking a lot yeah. of water. Don't even and I think the content anymore. really speaks for itself now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have six videos a week instead of one video of a fat guy yelling about something. <laughs> yeah, but you so. needed that one one video to launch all these six videos. So, yeah, the point is. Scott was rapidly climbing the rankings in the sportsman class, finishing 14th nationwide in 1956. When Scott looked at the Grand National standings, by the way, he's still running a stock car. Um, yeah. 
he recognized they, drivers that he was did these able cars to have beat. seatbelts back then probably not think so. uh yeah so when scott looked at the grand national standings he recognized drivers that he was able to beat in those mixed division races he knew that he uh he does he deserved to finish a little higher if he just yeah. had a good car off the track scott had his struggles like his dad, Will, Wendell liked to gamble, and sometimes a day's winnings at the track would that same night be lost at the card table. Oh, man. Scott also revealed to his wife, Mary, that he had fathered a boy with another woman. When the woman was murdered, Scott made the difficult decision to own up to his actions to his wife, and he and Mary eventually adopted the orphaned boy. Oh, my God. That's crazy, dude. Can you Damn. imagine that conversation? No, I can't. <laughs> That's freaking tough, dude. Yeah. By 1959, Scott's racing had reached a new level. He had settled into a conservative style of racing, avoiding duels at the front of the pack to drive safely and finish consistently near the top. All year long, he never actually won a feature race, but he placed first in points in sportsman class, winning the championship without even winning an event. That's like uh, yeah. Alan Prust. Yeah. Calculated. The original professor, Wendell yeah, Scott. The original professor. In 1960, Scott started racing in the modified division, an intermediate step, which, unlike sports in class, allowed upgrades from factory cars. Scott quickly saw that he didn't stand a chance to win in modified. You needed access to the newest models with the highest quality parts. He simply could not afford it. It was time to make the move to Grand National. Dude, no. modifieds nowadays are so sick uh they yeah. don't even look like real cars um i can't really do a good job of describing them but uh they're very cool and i wish they were more popular uh slap shoes yeah. uh he makes a lot of uh good really good nascar content um but he has a really great video on modifieds and what those are all about and i encourage you to check those out if that sounds like your cup of tea isn't he the guy who like we'll just chug a bottle of alcohol. No, that's <laughs> that's shoe nice. <laughs> uh, that's that's L.A. Beast. I guess L.A. Beast, like his local emergency room, was like, "Don't come back. If you come back for <laughs> something like this again, we're kicking you out." He like chugged like two gallons of olive oil. Oh my oh, god. god. Yeah, and then oh. in the next video, he's like, okay, so there's a reason that you don't do that. <laughs> oh, God. Like Olean. Do you guys know what Olean is? <laughs> yeah, the, like the fat-free lays. <laughs> yeah. It <laughs> caused uh, anal seepage. Yeah, it's like oily discharge that just seeps out of your All bum. Right. All right. This is a family show. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dysfunctional family show. And they tested it show. in Wisconsin. Like they in this one city in Wisconsin, they were like, "Here are a bunch of products with, with Olean in them," and a whole town just like shit themselves. <laughs> hey, what's the best state to test a a, a a a product that is essentially a laxative? Oh, I don't know. How about the state with the most cheese consumption? They're all blocked up, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I was in uh, elementary school, like a a Pepsi rep came and like let us test a soda. We all got Josta. For lunch, it was like what? this, like Shasta or Josta? Josta, J A S T A. It was like this. I've dark, never heard of that. It's like dark purple. Oh God! Soda. It has a it has a, a panther on the label. That can't <laughs> <Yeah>. be healthy. <laughs> yeah, Josta, the lesser known Josta. Surge. 
<laughs> Everyone knows Surge, but oh, it's made with guarana, so it's essentially an energy drink. Yeah, that's a, what that's exactly what you want to give to give to school children without <laughs> yeah. their parents' consent. That's great. Scott traveled to Charlotte, North Carolina, and bought a used race car from Buck Baker, who'd won two Grand National Championships himself. Scott paid two thousand dollars for the used Chevy, and on March fourth, nineteen sixty-one, he entered it into his first ever Grand National race in Spartanburg. South Carolina. Just like in the past, Wendell's inclusion in the race was a historical first. And just like in the past, it was almost totally ignored by the outside world. NASCAR decided to not even tell the spectators at the track that a black driver was competing, and race previews in the newspaper didn't mention the fact. When Scott crossed the starting line that spring southern morning, he was a color barrier buster, a trailblazer, and a pioneer. He was a son, a husband, and a father. He was a World War II vet, a cab driver, and a moonshine runner. He was born to unlucky circumstances, but lived as a lucky man. He was all of that and more, but he was also simply what he had always intended to be. He was Wendell Scott, a driver in the NASCAR Grand National Series, which is where we'll pick up next time on Pass Gas. Yeah, that's just yeah. the beginning of this guy's story. He actually, like, he goes on to break more barriers, um, and he has, like, a really, really long career, even after he stops racing eventually. So it's super interesting. This guy accomplished a ton. Um, so I'm really excited to, to tell the rest of his story. Yeah, I'm really yeah, stoked. This is a really cool story, and I he's just, like, an interesting, cool dude. Even the, sh like less than stellar parts like cheating on his wife like he adopted the kid mm -hmm. i think that's pretty admirable i just love how like these you know, like now if you're a race car driver you've sort of like you know started out karting and just like i make the joke like all you do is hang out with your dad every weekend <laughs> um your dad's your best friend uh but like these old dudes just had such interesting stories like they're all vets like we saw that with smoky eunuch too you know like yep. it was they're, they're a driver, but it's surrounded by, like, just adventure. Like, they're, they're there. They drive fast cars because they're just adventurous people. And that's, sure. like, back then especially, just a crazy thing to do is drive around in a circle really, really fast with, like, 40 other dudes. <laughs> I want to I clock, too, that spring southern morning sounds like a um, laundry detergent. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It'll leave you smelling is, fresh all day. Uh, what does that smell like to you? Um, like it's supposed to smell like like grass and honeysuckle, maybe. Yeah. Ooh, I love a good honeysuckle. That's my favorite flower smell. Actually, yes, I'll stand by that. Uh, thank you very much <laughs> for listening to Pass Gas. <laughs> <laughs> I've been Nolan Sykes. Uh, follow James Pumphrey on all social media at James More Pumphrey. More power, baby. Follow at James Pumphrey. <laughs> Follow Joe Weber. We got to get Joe more followers. Joe's a very yeah. funny guy, and he's, uh, I just, I, I love him to death. Uh, Joe G. Weber, tell him I sent you. Uh, <laughs> me. Um, and follow me at Nolan J. Sykes if you want. Follow Kanan. Oh, Kanan doesn't have any social media. Shout just appreciate Kanan. Yeah. You, know, you don't see him much. Our producer, Kanan. Write Kanan a letter him. and send it to his house. Just put Kanan from Pass Gas on the envelope. The mailman will know what to do. Yeah, they'll figure it out. <laughs> uh, 
All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, see you next week. Bye. Barda. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.